Well, this is Current Yield Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I am Jim Grant, and with me, as always, is the great deputy editor of Grants, Evan Lorenz, and Henry French is at the control panel. And with us today is our guest, is Shazad Kazi, who is Managing Director of China Beige Book. And we're going to be talking about... Uh, uh, I don't know, talking about the uh, the Great Wall, right? And the uh, People's Bank of China, which had a visitor this week. The first in at least a decade. Yeah. and uh, But before before we get down to uh, that kind of business, Evan, um, uh, what do you make of the fact that the United States is now a, um, a kind of a high-yielding sovereign in the world, uh, out-yielding the likes of, uh, oh, Greece, Portugal, um, and many emerging markets? Higher is better, right? So America's number one. As always, <laughs> I don't think Donald Trump would have it any other way. It is a curious thing that the uh, the problem children from uh, Europe's last <laughs> crisis a decade ago all have bond yields below the U.S. government, despite the U.S. government having a much higher bond rating. The um, Grand Canyon, as you pointed out, the world's largest military, and so many other resources. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm not sure it's a mystery exactly, but it is a. Um, it's seeming a. It's a seeming paradox. Perhaps it is a paradox. You know, uh, I remember so well when Greece was going to go back to what, to uh, to Plato? It was going back to the, the pre-financial, pre-industrial, and pre-agricultural ages of antiquity. And uh, now look at it. It's um, the new, tri- the new uh, bounding uh, triple B and on the way up credit. The most amazing thing to me is um, Bloomberg puts together different bond ad- indexes. They had bought the, um, what is it, the... Barclays Aggregate Bond Index uh, group a couple years ago. Barclays Ag, the famous Ag. Their Ag for the U.S. Treasury market has almost the same exact yield as emerging market sovereign debt in local currencies. These local currencies are often debasement prone and often drop, you know, 20 or 30 percent when things go awry. But the bond yield for emerging markets and local currencies is about equal to the Treasury market, give, a, give or take a couple basis points. Well, I wouldn't say that the U.S. dollar is uh, is uh, armored against debasement. In fact, it seems rather to be a policy here. Yeah, and given where the uh, dollar index is, it's uh, kind of trading at a high level relative to the last decade or so. So um, it might be the next shoe to drop. Yeah, could be. Well, anyway, hey, Shazad, welcome. Thank you very much. Good to be on with you. Yeah. So enough about the world's leading economy. Let's talk about the runner-up. Um, there was um, a big stimulus uh, so-called stimulus. I wonder some, sometimes just stimuli don't stimulate. But anyway, the big stimulus announced, is it going to do any good at all, Shazad? You know, the number that was announced sounds big, about $130-odd billion. Uh, but there are a couple of things that are important to point out. First of all, the budget deficit was probably going to overshoot than the target anyway, which, was, which means there was going to be more spending. But really, more importantly, this is not a number that is supposed to really, you know, uh, spur economic growth in China um, or really be a a, a big mover uh, in terms of the recovery that we're seeing there. This is by and large meant as a signal to markets and to the local economy. This is about, uh, you know, boosting confidence and allaying fears about China being, you know, somehow on the verge of a collapse or so forth. Uh, I think this is more about sentiment than anything else. But if it's uh, too little to do good, isn't it a sign of weakness and indecision rather than of strength and confidence? You know, let me take a step back here. You know, there has been a pretty serious, uh, you know, change in the Chinese economic playbook. And one of the things that under Xi now the party is trying to do is get away from that old model where they would spend a lot of money on investment, raise a lot of debt, and be able to juice high growth 
uh, rates that way. Uh, they have come to terms with the fact that the economy is going to continue to grow slower. And what they're more focused now on is deleveraging uh, uh, you know, the economy. So this is by and large, I think, part and parcel of, of this new policy playbook. Uh, it's very much intentional. The idea is to not spend a lot of money on that old, all those old drivers of growth. We're wondering how intentional it is and how much they're just reacting to, to what's happening in the economy. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, President Xi Jinping, who took power about a decade ago, had never visited the People's Bank of China since he became president, and he did just a week ago. Um, the government has make been instructed right? yeah. to make a withdrawal. <laughs> to, yeah, to make a withdrawal. He's been ordering state-owned banks and agencies to actually buy stocks to prop up the stock market. They've been trying to restrict uh, short selling. They did the aforementioned um, stimulus package, uh, you know, just today. I is there panic happening at the top levels of the government? And if so, what are they responding to? So I, I wouldn't call it a panic, what's going on. Um, you know, certainly every time Chinese equities sell off or, or, or appear to be in, in the kind of free fall that they are now, you see, you know, the national team move in, you see the state directed big, you know, companies move in even to do buybacks at times. And, if, and you know, and, and that kind of thing is not very uncommon when it comes to the Chinese stock market. It is also sees heavy bouts of state intervention, sort of like the economy um, naturally does as well. Uh, so I think what's going on again is that there is a pretty serious, uh, you know, there's been a serious uh, flight when it comes to uh, foreign investors. Um, and, and there is a very serious drop in confidence, especially among foreign investors when it comes to Chinese companies. Uh, you know, this year's expectations were so wildly unrealistic uh, that, uh, you know, when the numbers didn't get anywhere close to it, you know, we've seen sort of an all out panic in markets. Um, I think what you have focus on coming down from the party is to stabilize the situation. Um, I am not prepared to say that they are uh, panicking just as yet, or quite frankly, even being close to a panic right now. Might they be advised to panic, given the um, I don't know, it's like a, a, the whole constellation of uh, facts and trends are converging? Um, you know, I'm not sure which Western corporate executive is, is uh, going to be the next to decline to visit uh, the corporate property in the mainland owing to fears of being detained. But it, this, the, the whole political environment seems, uh, seems uh, hostile. The geopolitical environment seems menacing, you know, given these uh, uh, confrontations, for example, near the Philippines, not to mention all the, the looming difficulties over Taiwan and the menace of that situation, um, uh, the default. Uh, now announced officially by a country garden. I mean, it, it, it seems as if um, uh, things are not so hot in China. In fact, uh, rather dire. Is that an overread? Uh, I think certain parts of the situation are absolutely dire. Um, then again, it's not because this was not somehow intended. Let me be very specific about that. When you look at the Chinese property market, there has been and a very intentional deflating of the property bubble in China. As a matter of fact, I would go on to say that the party seems to have taken the pain at a time and place of its own choosing rather than being caught by surprise by an eventual hard landing and being able to, you know, and, and suffering a much worse outcome. Uh, they are absolutely intentionally trying to deflate the bubble. Um, and and seem to be very committed to it, as we are now seeing in the aftermath of not only the, the defaults and, and failure of Evergrande, uh, but what Country Garden is going through, and the very serious likelihood that there are other smaller Chinese developers, which may in the coming year or so uh, be, be in a similar position um, as, as some, some of the big ones are. 
so, so that's number one. Uh, n- number two, the larger macro uh, you know, playbook I just described, I think what they have done is very clearly signal to markets uh, that the old China growth story is gone. It's the it's it's investors and it's markets that have not yet fully understood that and come to terms with a slowing, a, you know, not just a slowing China, but a China that you know increasingly just grows at a much slower pace, sub five percent, uh, most likely, uh, you know, which, which was not something that was being predicted uh, for for this decade for sure. Um, number three on the geopolitical front, front and on the regulatory policy front. Um, you know, there are a lot of changes uh, that are happening specifically when we think about the management of Chinese tech companies, when we when when the when the party thinks about how it wants to regulate data transfers and information flows, this is a time of very serious upheaval. And the, this this period of upheaval, I think, will carry on for several more years. Um, and 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 that's just the way the party wants to go because maintaining control and and ensuring the the rules and laws by which companies operate in China is you know the, the, the <laughs> does not undermine the party's control and its influence. Um, and and there's just no way around it. Uh, so I'm not particularly sure what could be done to alleviate the concerns of foreign executives. Uh, you know, as we think about going through this period of upheaval. So so taking a step back, uh, China Beige Book's bread and butter is doing the kind of survey work to give Western executives a sense of what's actually happening in China's economy without looking at official statistics, which often are misleading. Um, China, three years ago, as you pointed out, decided to start pricking the bubble of the world's largest real estate bubble. Um, Property investment had accounted for something like 25 or 30 percent of all Chinese GDP, now that we're in year three of this bubble kind of deflating slowly so far, what's happening in the real economy? Like when you do your survey work, what is it telling you about like the activity in China's, you know, um, you know, economy? Uh, you know, this year has been, uh, you know, very interesting for a couple of reasons, because I think fundamentally uh, the, the consensus on China, I think, has been wrong uh, all year. What we saw in the beginning of the year was a lot of uh, excitement over the reopening uh, and this thesis that the economy was going to immediately skyrocket because you're going to get this wave of revenge spending and, uh, and you know, consumers were going to go berserk out there. Um, that, of course, was never going to be true, uh, not only given the historic pattern, you know, you don't get big consumer uh, driven recoveries in China, um, but also for a range of other reasons, given, you know, including, of course, a property market, which had the, the pricking of the bubble has also meant the destruction of serious amounts of household wealth. Um, so the economy was a lot slower to open up and 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 uh, recover initially than had been anticipated. But what we have seen now in China Beige Book numbers over the last nine plus months is nevertheless a steady recovery. It's a it might be a boring or lackluster recovery, but you have seen sequential improvement in the first quarter over last quarter of fourth you know of Q four of last year, in the second quarter of this year over Q one, and then finally in the third quarter over the second quarter. Um, Of course, what you also are getting on the side are that views or perceptions about the Chinese economy are once again divorced from how, you know, what the fundamentals are looking like, because the perception is that China has been or or is on the verge of a collapse and the the recovery has sputtered um, and so forth. But that actually is not true. What you have is a very boring, but but economic recovery nevertheless. How do you square kind of like a boring, uh, lackluster recovery 
with some of the sightings we do get from China. Like, for example, they used to publish the statistic on youth unemployment, and it got so high that I think in either May or June, they just completely stopped publishing it. Um, they've also gone after people, I think, like Kroll, uh, uh, who did survey work and interviewed people in China because the data they were sending out to Western companies was just too negative. So they detained people who were trying to get the real picture. H how do you square this kind of what sounds like a completely anodyne backdrop with kind of these sightings that seem to hint at something much darker? Yeah, you know, I think when, when we talk about data censorship, uh, you know, over the last decade or so, the fact is that China has unfortunately gone in the opposite direction of where we all thought it would go. Rather than becoming more open, it has become more and more closed off and an and information desert, as I like to call it, more or less. Uh, and, and that pattern continues as they, as we, as we said, they're thinking through how they want to treat data and information uh, broadly, not just economic data. Uh, so that's an ongoing problem, and I think will only get more and more severe. Um, as far as the youth unemployment picture is concerned, there's no question about the fact that China has a very serious youth and unemployment problem. China actually has a broader labor market problem, because even though you're getting this slow uh, uh, you know, sequential recovery taking place, that means by definition that the labor market is nowhere near uh, uh, you know, old levels in reality. Um, hiring is has not you know, picked up as aggressively as, as one would like to see in, in a recovery. Um, you know, and, and, and certain parts of the economy hiring is actually stalled. So, so there are very serious labor market concerns that you know, are still there. Are conditions better than you know, in, during the height of COVID or during the lockdowns that we saw last year or the year before? Certainly things are starting to get better, but they're still far away from pre-COVID levels. Um, so, you know, that's, I think, the main context with which uh, to approach this. Um, otherwise, of course, any data point that shows very serious problems in China will either get manipulated, as you've seen with fixed asset investment, for example, which has become largely a useless indicator, um, or, or will get censored out, just a long-running problem in Chinese statistics. Um, is it possible that uh, President Xi's visit to the central bank was to discuss the foreign exchange market and... Uh, the renminbi exchange rate? And if so, what might that portend? You know, the, the president's visit to the PBOC, I continue to say, is largely symbolic. Uh, you know, the fact is that these decisions and these discussions don't need to take place uh, at the PBOC. I think that was just chosen as a venue to, uh, you know, sort of make some of make some of these announcements. Otherwise, those conversations take place, uh, you know, far, far away from any of these public institutions. As we know, uh, you know, the, the central bank in China is not anywhere close to being this having the same type of independence that central banks around uh, the world, whether it's Japan or, or, or us here with the Fed or the UK have. Um, it's very much tightly controlled uh, by the party and by the party's uh, policies. The central bank has also been active in injecting record amounts of liquidity into the market recently. And, and this I want to use to a segue to ask, is there a risk that there's a financial crisis potentially looming in China? So by way of background, I, I know you know this, but Chinese local governments are responsible for providing most of state provided services and infrastructure, but Beijing siphons off most of the tax revenue. To fill the gap, they've borrowed heavily over the last three decades, largely through these local government financing vehicles. And combining this debt with local government obligations, Chinese muni municipalities owe something like $15 trillion or 85% of GDP. Um, is there a risk that the problems in the real estate market metastasize to municipal finances and lead to something, I guess, much more precipitous? And is that part of the reason why the PBOC has been kind of unleashing so much liquidity in the market? You know, the, the PBOC has been doing these uh, liquidity, liquidity injections for a couple of reasons. Uh, first one is uh, 
you know, provision, provision of credit more broadly. So all year long, one of the things you've heard are calls for, you know, bigger stimulus in China to counteract that, you know, slow pace of recovery that we've been discussing. The thing that has gone completely unnoticed is that we pick up in China Beige Book's uh, tracking of the credit and shadow finance market is that there actually has been monetary policy easing in plain sight all year long. If you look at the cost of credit that companies have reported uh, reported to us this year and in the prior years, you see a very clear drop in average interest rates. Companies across every major sector today are borrowing at uh, lower rates than they were a year ago. Um, and there has been a lot of focus and continuously there, there being ample credit uh, and supplying credit to firms. Now, there's a different problem going on in China uh, that even though companies are able to borrow at cheaper rates, because the economy overall isn't recovering as quickly as uh, one would have assumed at the beginning of the year, people, folks assume you're not seeing tremendous amounts of borrowing because you're not seeing tremendous amounts of investment and hiring in the economy. So it's a bit of a pushing on the string kind of phenomena going on. That's 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 just number one context uh, for, for what's going on. Number two, when we think about financial crisis in China, the, the, the truth is that the model that we have is something that would work in a market economy like ours. Um, it doesn't work for an economy where uh, banks and the financial system and the plumbing and all the rest is controlled almost entirely, almost entirely by the state and the and state uh, you know authorities have uh, inordinate amounts of power to you know force lenders to lend and, and borrowers to borrow. And for that reason, we remain very skeptical of the idea that you get a financial crisis, a system crushing financial crisis in China. And I think what you're seeing is, is, is evidence of, of what we've said, uh, that you're going to have the state continuously intervening and making sure that money is being provided to plug the holes in order to um, in order to make sure that you don't end up with a large crisis. There are bigger problems associated with a policy like that. So, so don't get me wrong that you know, throwing good money behind bad has serious repercussions in the medium and long run. Uh, but the financial crisis uh, thesis is something that we've uh, been very, very skeptical against. As a matter of fact, we pushed back pretty hard against. I, I would buy that if China just had kind of a bank-run financial system because the banks can kick the can, they can lie about their losses, and they can push it off for a very long time. But China does also have a very large bond market. Local government financing vehicles are the largest bond issuers. And those bonds, while they're not supposedly guaranteed by the state, they're viewed as kind of risk-free because they have a quasi-state guarantee. We saw in the U.S. in 2008 when Fannie and Freddie defaulted on what was seen as super safe paper. And then when the prime reserve defaulted on a money market fund, that when investors have an asset they thought was risk-free and it suddenly becomes risky, it leads to kind of a reassessment of just about every asset in the system and kind of bad things. Is there a risk of something like that happening in China? I think that's a great point. And that's where it, it, it could potentially get tricky. So the question could be, you know, which investors ultimately does the state step in to protect and which investors it doesn't step in to protect which bonds ultimately you know have that uh, you know ultimate guarantee or backing by the government and which ultimately do not so so i don't want to suggest that necessarily every piece of security that is owned will has has a, a de facto government backing and and all investors across the board uh, you know are 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 going to be fine uh, i just want to make sure that we're you know where we're kind of thinking about the fact that the, the large system crushing sort of financial crises, the Lehman moments or so forth, uh, is, is probably a very, very low probability event. And that would require redoing a lot of the assumptions around how the Chinese financial system operates. China Beige Book has been pretty vocal this year saying, 
the bears are too bearish for 2023, but you've also said they're probably not bearish enough on the medium to long term. Could, could you explain what you mean by that and kind of how you see the next, I guess, two, three, five, six, or whatever number of years playing out? Yeah, one of our favorite lines is that is the one you just quoted. And, you know, the other one being that, uh, you know, investors have been uh, too bearish cyclically, but too but are too bullish structurally. And what we mean by that is that in the short run right now, what you are getting, as we've discussed uh, this afternoon, is certainly that cyclical recovery taking place. And the economy is in a better position today than uh, the market consensus or, or panic around in China uh, you know, collapse would have you believe. At the same time, investors are not factoring in, as I said a little bit ago, the idea that the era of, you know, six, seven percent growth in China is over. Double digit growth has been over for a long time, but even high single digit growth is gone. You're looking most likely at a sub five percent growth scenario moving forward. And just to interrupt you, sub 5% doesn't sound horrible. Like the U.S. grew, I think, 2.7% over the last three decades. And the last three decades had some, you know, pretty good years in it. When you say sub 5%, do you mean 1%? Do you mean 0%? Do you mean like Japan, where it went through two decades of essentially no growth? Yeah, sub 5% doesn't sound horrible. Although, you know, China, from, from a developmental standpoint, of course, is, at, is in, a, in a very different place than the U.S. And, and markets don't seem to have certainly factored in the fact, you know, the idea that you could be getting sub 5% in China. But that, but here's where the crucial point comes in. And you had it right, Evan. Uh, this, you know, if if the economic transition continues as planned and they're able to make progress, that sub 5% doesn't look too bad. But if this economic transition from going to an investment-heavy, investment-led model to a consumer-driven uh, you know, driven or consumption-driven model falters or fails, it is very likely that within the next several years, we will have growth prints where it'll be 1%, even 0%. So, the, so this whole, you know, this turning around of the Titanic, this whole project can certainly falter. And then the economic ramifications can be very, very bad. And that... I don't believe today has been factored in at all in any kind of serious manner by China watchers. Shazad, the, the Titanic sank. <laughs> <laughs> I should have picked a better. No, I, well, I don't know. Listening to you, you know, I, I, um, I see here that Bloomberg is reporting that uh, that uh, the government is now mobilizing the the national government balance sheet uh, to do borrowing rather than, uh, fobbing this off on the, uh, on the provinces and the regions, which have been perhaps over levered. Is this a sign of, uh, of a gathering, uh, national debt crisis? I think it's too early to make uh, that big of a call, um, you know, on, on, on what's happening in China right now. So I, I think, I think we need to wait and watch, uh, before, before, you know, coming to sort of such a, such a drastic uh, conclusion, I'd say. Is there a risk of a major devaluation? I mean, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen in foreign investors pull cash from the Chinese market at the fastest pace since 2016, which followed a devaluation in 2015. We've seen the PBOC try to raise rates in the CNH market. That's the renminbi market in Hong Kong, the one that actually can trade a little bit internationally. And we've seen Xi Jinping come up at the uh, central bank's door when he's kind of ignored it for a decade. Is there a risk of a big sudden devaluation? I, I think, you know, as it is, given the fact that rates in China have gone in the total opposite direction of obviously where rates in the U.S. and uh, other major markets, uh, central bank rates uh, have have gone, um, th there already is concern around that. Um, I, I think I, you know the the old numbers around six point nine, seven point one have have obviously not 
are, are no longer something they've been able to successfully defend. Um, I think it's a risk that they continue to watch against. Um, it's hard for me uh, today to say that, you know, where we're absolutely looking at a major devaluation taking place. Shazad, even in, a, uh, even in totalitarian states, uh, uh, popular unrest can uh, can surface. People can express it in different ways. Are you seeing signs that uh, uh, that uh, the, the man and woman in the Chinese street has uh, kind of had it and is uh, about ready to express himself, herself against Xi's policies and uh, the Chinese Communist Party? You know, when it comes to unrest in China, you actually get much more of it than most people probably understand or know, um, especially when it comes to, you know, Chinese factory workers and wage laborers and so forth, who happen to be very, uh, you know, militant and radicalized in many ways uh, than, than is commonly understood. Um, that said, if, if we're talking about not just the factory workers that often fight for better conditions or higher wages, but, uh, you know, middle class and, and uh, other folks coming out on the street I wouldn't bet on that happening. Um, you're seeing, you know, some forms of sort of social rebellion, like the lying flat or laying flat things and, and people giving up working, you know, 12 hours a day and six days a week and all that sort of stuff. Uh, the, there's a cultural shift that's taking place. But I don't think there is much appetite today among Chinese households uh, to come out and, and try to get rid of the Communist Party. Um, and over the last decade, the type of control that Secretary Xi has asserted just over the party alone, um, I think tells you that, that that is going to be a pretty serious challenge for, for the everyday Chinese man or woman. Again, you survey like thousands of business people um, every couple months to find out what's going on. What's the sentiment today among the business class and what was it like, you know, two or three years ago? Yeah, I think COVID zero, the policies around COVID zero, the tech crackdown, the the very serious tightening of regulation uh, and and you know businesses and licenses and and the clear attack on foreign enterprises, it has had a cumulative effect of absolutely um, I would say depressing uh, business confidence overall. Right, the economy is in a very different place today than it was three years ago, and 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 of course the economic management is in a significantly different place. Uh, than it was three years ago. Um, I see companies being very cautious when, when we look at the data on investment and capital expenditures, hiring that we were talking about. These are very good indicators to understand borrowing, of course, we talked about. These are very good indicators to help us understand uh, just where is the mind of the Chinese executive. And I think the mind of the Chinese executive right now is in a very defensive spot. In um, 2008 and 2009, the world went into a global recession. And in 2009, China was able to avoid it by basically ordering its banks to lend. And I think they lent something like 40% of GDP that year. You said that that's not on the agenda now because they realized that building empty towers and fixed asset investment had gotten to such a bubble stage that they can't do it anymore. There are signs that Europe is slowing down. Some indications that the U.S. might slow down. Um, the inverted yield curve has been a historic harbinger of recessions. If the world does slip into a recession, what does it mean to China given all of its problems? If the world slips into a recession, that is certainly additional bad news for China. So whereas we've been talking all you know all year about there is a sequential recovery taking place, that could very much come to a serious end. Uh, you know, let me uh, quickly zoom in here on on the Chinese manufacturing sector in relation to this. The manufacturing sector, despite what top line PMI uh, results suggested uh, over the last five or six months has actually held on a lot better when you look at things like production or even when you look at industrial production numbers, certainly in our data, 
And I think the reason that has happened, a big chunk of the reason for sure, is because we haven't gotten that recession in the U.S. Um, and, and other markets, you know, developed markets in Europe, or, or as, as big a recession as was initially feared. So, so I think if if we get the recession scenario kicking in finally, that's most certainly uh, very bad news for China because the manufacturing sector holding on has been a much more important part of that recovery story than I think anybody's understood because markets were driven by the idea that, oh, Chinese manufacturing is already in a recession because the top line PMI print has been negative. Um, so not only do you have the, the uh, and of course, this is interrelated, right? Because uh, growth slowdowns abroad mean growth slowdowns for the Chinese manufacturing sector, which of course then has a, uh, a knock-on effect on other uh, countries, whether in Europe or Japan and such, that actually also sell to China when it comes to manufacturing equipment and other uh, input parts and components, has a knock-on effect certainly on commodities exporting uh, uh, countries as well. Uh, so, so, so that would be a, a, a you know cycle of bad news. Shazan, what what do your data say about uh, transcendent bankruptcy filings in in China? You know, we track uh, things like. Uh, cash flow and and uh, delays on on paying back existing loans. And one of the things that we've seen over the last several years is because the level of borrowing has been so incredibly low, because there has been such a serious deleveraging within, I, I think, in 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 the uh, the economy, when you look at corporate borrowing, I'm talking about that very specifically, uh, that, Things like uh, you know defaults or or things like you know non-performing loans getting out of control has actually not been one of the core economic problems in China. Whereas before COVID, that used to be a big focus of everyone's. But the um, debt in the last two or three years is a flow and not a stock. And when we look at stocks, uh, just just to use one proxy, Chinese banking assets are fifty-five trillion dollars. And to put that in perspective, the U.S. economy, which is much larger than China's, has a $24 trillion uh, banking system. So there's been this incredible stock of debt that was built up even before the last three years. Are we seeing problems with that massive stock of debt that is built up in China? Um, there isn't anything from the corporate side, which is what we gauge, uh, you know, that really sticks out. Um, so there might be other, you know, there might be other debt with, you know, uh, other, you know, Areas where the debt has been issued um, that, you know, obviously I might not be tracking where you may have problems building up. But I mean, when it comes to corporates, really, the, the scenario is the total opposite. I mean, the, the problem has been to get companies to take out loans, not uh, waiting for companies to pay back their loans. That's been the, the story the last several years now. Any sense that um, Chinese stocks are so low uh, as to offer compelling value? With the right assumptions about where the economy is headed and what the what the you know the next 4 to 5 years are going to look like and with a very realistic understanding that things like the tech crackdown are nowhere near being over that China is only now embarking on what appears to be a pretty serious revamp of the regulatory state and so there's a lot of uncertainty so pricing and risk I think that needs to be done correctly a big the problem right now in why you see this reaction, the sell-off is not only because, uh, you know, markets were so disappointed against, you know, uh, against the, the expectations that they had, but also because you've repeatedly heard um, some seriously bad calls about where the market's going to go, which has misled investors. Things like the tech crackdown is coming to an end. That's not it's absolutely incorrect. Or things like big stimulus is on its way. It's absolutely incorrect. We haven't seen it happen. 
So, you know, missed expectations coupled with bad calls on China, which have misled investors, uh, have obviously been a recipe for disasters when it, a recipe for disaster when it comes to what has happened with, with Chinese equities. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, when introducing um, our guest, uh, Shazad Kazi, I neglected to mention the most important element of his background, and which is that he is an alumnus at Indiana University. That's absolutely right. All right. And proud one who's getting very involved with Indiana University, again, as an alum, too. <laughs> okay, good. Well, thank you for being with us. It's been a pleasure and a most informative one. Evan, thank you. Good questions. And uh, Henry, uh, excellent sound quality, yeah. Uh, oh, Henry, uh, it's okay to tell people about your impending marriage, is it not, Henry? Yes, it's okay. Yeah. They're not invited to the wedding, though, right? No, no one's invited. No one's invited. <laughs> they can send gifts, though. Congratulations, Henry. Yeah. 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 Bravo, Henry. Okay. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, talk to you soon. Jim Grant on behalf of Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. Talk soon. <laughs>